0: We're at a study of Paul's letter to the Colossians, as long as we're there. Uh, this morning I spoke to you on the matter of the uh, kingdom of God coming, and in particular our calling to be in the world but not of it, to uh, have our place as being distinct but not separate from the world and the need that the world has for such a ministry. Here in the letter to Colossians, we have some very practical instructions for um, the uh, common working arrangements of that day, slaves and masters, as well as uh, particular instruction on prayer and speaking to those who are outside. And so I'm going to try to make it plain or practical for you this evening, so if we're to be in the world but not of it, how does that apply to me in my 9 to 5 or my neighborhood or my friends, my sewing circle, whatever it is, um, I uh, would like to uh, speak to you this evening on the mindset of missionary living from Colossians chapter 3 verse 22 into chapter 4. Bondservants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, and not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. For you serve the Lord Christ, but he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, Give your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in chains, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside Redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Tychicus, a beloved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me. I am sending him to you for this very purpose, that he may know your circumstances and comfort your hearts with Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother, one who is one of you. They will make known to you all things which are happening here, Amen. Let us pray together. And once more, we pray a word that we pray, O Lord, that uh, that word, the word of which we just sung, which framed the heavens and the earth, would so build up your people, so direct the course of our lives, that your word should not only have its way in us, but through us to the world around. We pray that you would give grace to us all in our daily calling to be mindful of that greater, higher calling that we have in Jesus for we to serve the Lord Christ in whom we pray. Amen. When I was a young Christian in the 1990s in Charlotte, there was a man who came to our Sunday school class. He was a Romanian pastor and he told us the magnificent story of the revolution that had just taken place in Romania, how it had been really in so many ways a Christian revolution as the communists came to remove a troublesome pastor, troublesome to them, from his church and how the people of the town jammed the church in the square around it and refused to leave. Well, it's a wonderful story. I've mentioned it to you before. It was late winter, usually bitter cold in Romania that time of year. But during this time, as the people were sleeping outside, unwilling to leave, the temperature, even at night, was still warm and pleasant, so they did not disperse. And finally, when the commander ordered the troops to fire, they would not. And this man gave glory to God for all that happened to overthrow the bloody and oppressive reign of the aggressive atheist Ceausescu and his government with not a shot being fired. But now this man said they were faced with a whole new problem. This is the reason he was coming to our large college and career Sunday school in Charlotte. Now, overnight, he said, there was a whole new government. We had uh, new schools, new freedoms. And uh, the, the new government actually wanted the Christians to take a lead in rebuilding the civilization of that historically Christian country, to undo what had been done by the Ceausescu regime, to bring it back to something of what it was before the communists had come to power. And when that happened, the Romanian Christians suddenly realized something they never understood before. While they were being persecuted, indeed often risking their lives, worshipping in secret, They thought that they were people of great faith. They were suffering for their faith. They were risking their lives for their faith. And yet, the moment they were called out of hiding and asked to take the lead as Christians in the world, they realized the staggering difficulty of that calling, that they were not able to do it. They realized that in so many ways, it is harder to live for the Lord than it is to die for the Lord. Do you believe that? that it is at times easier to give your life than to live your life in the world for his glory. And so this man was coming to America to ask young people who were just starting out, starting their careers or just graduating, if they could come to his country and help. Can you help us? Well, what kind of help do they need? They would take just about anybody. This, this man said, we need Christian teachers, Christian business people, Christian government workers, Christian laborers of all sorts. He uh, cast a, a very wide net. And I don't know if any of those people went to Romania, but he was going from church to church to say, come over here to help us. I, I couldn't help at the moment. I didn't go to Romania. But I did want to rise to the challenge that that man put forth that day. And I determined that I wanted to live for God's glory in the world. That mindset is what Paul describes to the Colossians in this letter. He describes it in a great variety of ways, of course, and I've just broken into the end of his letter. This morning, though, I was sp- speaking on being in the world but not of it. Having a missionary mindset as one who is sent into the world. And this evening, I'd like to make this a little more practical with the sermon on missionary living. As the Apostle joins in our passage, a Christian's labor and prayer and testimony. And that will be the three points that I'm bringing to you. Nothing fancy, no snazzy outline this evening. I couldn't think of anything better. I was trying to rhyme things or alliterate things, and I, I failed. <laughs> labor, prayer, testimony, that's all you can get this evening from me. Number one, Labor labor. Paul has spent in his life uh, various seasons, you'll remember, um, supporting himself through making tents, or more generally speaking, uh, leather work uh, called tent making in that day. Tents weren't his first priority, although I'm sure that his tents would have gotten a five-star rating on Amazon, just saying. Nevertheless, Paul understood that his work was just part of his larger missionary calling. He was supporting himself. He was meeting people. He was doing good work and doing it in such a way that as we read this warning to the Thessalonians, people took notice of how he worked and why. Why do you work? Well, people do it for many reasons. If you like to read bumper stickers like I do, you've probably seen the one that says, I owe, I owe, it's off to work, I go. A vast portion of the workforce finds that is the best reason they can must muster for going to the job each day. According to one poll, only 43% of American office workers are satisfied with their jobs. If that sounds low to you, just thank the Lord you're not in Japan. I don't know if their offices are worse or whether they're just uh, hiring the wrong people, but the figure dips to 17% of workers in Japan. I read about a company in America that had a lunchtime seminar for employees. It was on various topics, but one memo read, Lunch and Learn Seminar. Who's controlling your life? Get your manager's approval before attending. We, we find that uh, we are miserable because we are seeking the smile of the wrong boss. We are looking for the wrong reward. And we are laboring in the wrong way altogether. Uh, Paul addresses himself to the lowest level of that society, to slaves, and he gives them a completely new perspective on their work. You're not working for that man anymore. You work for the Lord Christ. You are not going to do it the same way. Not for the, not for his eyes or smile, but for the smile of heaven. And don't think that you're not going to get paid anything, or oh, that man is not going to give you anything, but. From the Lord, you are to receive the reward. And by the way, you Christian masters, you better give your slaves what is right and fair. I don't care if it's not the way it's done, because you yourself have a manager, a master in heaven. Well, when people today ask, how can I glorify God? They aren't usually told, go to the office. When students ask, how can I serve God with my life? They don't usually hear, How about taking up a trade? When somebody explains to a Christian acquaintance, I work in such and such a field, usually you don't hear praise and glory to God. Or the next time you find yourself changing the fourth diaper of the day or doing another assignment for your engineering class or writing some personnel reviews, I think that you'd rather be doing something else, anything else. Um, This is a sermon for you. In the first century, Christian slaves had even less reason to be enthusiastic about their work than you. Paul gives them, however, a glimpse of glory. The lowest level worker, he says that slave master is not your supervisor anymore. He's not the one whom you serve. He's not the one who will reward you. And there is more to this situation now than meets the eye. And as I've explained on several occasions, the Bible teaches us to have this higher, greater perspective on labor, that it is unto the Lord, that it's good and honorable in itself. I mean, you know, in a day in which the ideal in the ancient world was not to have to work with your hands, the apostle frequently mentions working with your hands, like God Himself, who worked in the world six days and rested on the seventh. He God planted a garden, and the man was given the responsibility to till and keep it in paradise. There's nothing undignified about dirty hands. Work is godlike. God has worked for us. We just sang about it. And we are to work as well for him and for others. So this is my basic review of the idea of Christian vocation. I have six sub-points and another sermon, which I'm not going to get into, but if you want more about that, I'm happy to point you to another passage or another sermon on that. However, I'd like to go beyond that tonight, beyond the idea of just mere Christian vocation, and consider labor as a kind of missionary service labor as a kind of missionary service. This is exactly what Paul wrote to Titus in the second chapter of his letter. Exhort bondservants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity. Why? Many reasons could be given. But here in particular, that they may adorn the doctrine of God their Savior in all things. That by doing such things, by by suddenly being faithful and respectful, honest, they are going to be adorning the doctrine of God. That is to say, making the, the teaching of God our Savior attractive. Or again, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 11, make it your ambition to mind your own business and to work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. Philippians chapter 2, do everything without complaining or disputing that you may be blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word God of life. Here's a new purpose for an old calling. You're not just to go out now as a Christian and race the same old rat to the glory of God. God's people are being called as agents of a redemptive plan to serve as a kind of bivocational missionary, missionaries, and at the end of their lives, they may regret that they didn't love their neighbors or advance Christ's kingdom and do righteousness in the world as they could have and have cause to say with regret, oh, I wish I'd spent more time at the office. Not what you would usually get. I'd like to illustrate that uh, to you. Last year, I mentioned Wayne Alderson to you, who just passed away a couple years ago, by the way. I'd like to give you a little more of his story, the full story which you can read in this book, The Wayne Alderson Story, Stronger Than Steel, by R.C. Sproul. Out of print, but thanks to Amazon and similar services, you can pick up a used copy for not very much money. Wayne came to a Pennsylvania steel mill in the worst possible shape at a miserable time. Violent clashes with labor and management were common. There was terrible quality, chronic absenteeism, and everybody just hated everybody. Um, racial hatred, uh, labor versus management. In 1965, he took the job and he worked himself up the ladder. But by 1972, the company, which had been losing millions for years, was on the verge of bankruptcy. The labor management tensions were at their height. The workmen went out on strike in October of '72. And what was uh, to follow was called 84 Days of Hell. These were the tough days when the steelworkers went on strike outside. You never know what might happen. Alderson had just been promoted over operations. He met secretly with the local steelworkers president, the USW president, a man named Sam Piccolo, and he negotiated an end to the strike. And, well, there's a film... Available on YouTube, that goes on to explain what happens next. You can hear it as the workers describe it themselves that, uh, that this man, who just been promoted to head of operations at a strike, made all the difference. Wayne had become a Christian, and he said, I'm going to love these people, and I'm going to treat them like they are valuable. And he had a whole new style of management. He got out there at the shift change, well, twice a day, uh, three shifts there, but uh, he caught the seven o'clock and he caught the three o'clock and he started meeting those men as they were coming, as they were knowing, speaking to them, getting to know them, asking about their families. Is your little girl better? He started to wear the black hat of labor when he was on the shop floor, identifying with the men, not the white hat of management. He told the guy on the chipper, the hardest job in the plant. He would uh, hammer off these, uh, the uh, ends of the castings. He said, uh, how much do you get paid for that? Uh, let, me give that let, me, let me have a try. Uh, he, he did it for two minutes. He said, uh, you, you, you're making every penny of what you're getting paid here. And um, he never appreciated how hard it is to do what he had to do. It, it was completely sincere. You'll see online... Uh, Wayne is, is, is not a phony. He actually has very few gifts, very few speaking gifts. He's not a very warm and fuzzy kind of guy, but he had a very large heart. And by the sheer force of this man's Christian love, in 21 months, he completely turned around a steel mill. I quote the book here. Initial skepticism gave way to belief as the group grew gradually into... Uh, I'm sorry... Uh, excuse me, I'm I'm skipping ahead here. One one more quote here. Over the next 21 months, Pitron's turnaround was as dramatic as any in the annals of American industry. They went from a $6 million loss to a $6 million profit. Productivity rose 64%. Absenteeism dropped from 20% to less than 1%, unheard of, in that industry. Labor grievances went from 12 per week to one per year. The union boss, Sam Piccolo, uh, teased Wayne about how he was acting. And after he mentioned that he was a Christian, he says, well, yeah, you're going to have to teach me some of that Bible that you're following. He teased him once, he teased him a second time. By the third time, Wayne was ready. He had a New Testament in his pocket. And as Sam teased him the third time, he said, well, I'm just doing what it says here in Romans 13 and opened the book and read to him about a sincere and caring love for one's neighbor that overcomes evil with good. And Piccolo said they needed to talk again next Wednesday. And so soon there was this uh, Bible study with him and the union boss and then with three men and then with 12 men and then with 200 men in the storage room in the open hearth. Men were profoundly influenced and changed. They started caring for one one another. Drunkenness and domestic abuse plummeted. Uh, I quote, Initial skepticism gave way to belief as the group grew gradually into hundreds. Workers' families were noticing the changes also as love, dignity, and respect were replacing hostility. The ensuing months brought a dramatic change to the plant and its people. Something powerful was bringing an order to life in... That plant. I, I can only sketch the story for you. You think, uh, can, it, can it really happen? Somebody came there to make a documentary about the most unbelievable turnaround in business history, um, ended up putting a good amount of Wayne Alderson's faith into the story because it was inseparable. This man's Christian love made a complete difference, not only in the plant, but in bringing hundreds of men to the Lord, you see him in the video. He is not an impressive man in any way. He doesn't speak as well as most of you. He applied Paul's words to industry. He just set out to be a Christian at work, but he set out very sincerely, very energetically, very earnestly, and what a difference he made, applying Paul's simple words to industry. Wayne then started a consulting firm after the now very profitable steel mill was, was bought. He started a consulting firm to bring his message to other manufacturing companies. And wherever he went, the message was the same. Love and respect, generosity and sympathy will transform the often adversarial environment of the American workplace into a person affirming, more appreciative, more understanding, more cheerful environment. Now, he had a particular advantage, I suppose, as being uh, head of operations. Uh, me, when I was working in a bank, I was a programmer for much of that time, not even have anybody even reporting to me. Uh, I still had the plenty of opportunity to take people out to lunch. I mean, you know, you don't wanna, you're not being called to um, speak to them about Christ at the water cooler or whatever here, but we all went to lunch and taking people out and to be able to speak to them about the Lord. Uh, to be able to shine, as Paul says, as, 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 brightness, as bright stars in the darkness of the night. There's a lot of darkness in the American workforce. I don't know if uh, Walt Bettinger, the recently retired CEO of Charles Schwab, is a Christian or not, but I bet you that his senior business strategy professor in college was. In a recent interview, the man gave with the New York Times, uh, Walt, told about one of the biggest career lessons he ever learned. Walt had maintained a 4.0, perfect grade point average, all the way through when he was intending to graduate with a perfect GPA, and it all came down to his final exam in business strategy. He says in the interview with the New York Times, I had spent many hours studying and memorizing formulas to do calculations for the case studies, he recalls and the teacher handed out the final exam on one piece of paper. Once everyone had their paper, he said, go ahead and turn it over. Both sides were blank. Next, the professor said, I've taught you everything that I can teach you about business in the last 10 weeks, but the most important message, the most important question is this. What is the name of the lady that cleans this building. Walt says the only test I ever failed and I got a B for the class that I deserved. Her name was Dottie. I didn't know Dottie. I'd seen her. But I'd never taken the time to ask her her name. I've tried to know every Dottie I've worked with ever since. Work is a place where most of us meet, what, 90% of the non-Christian people we know, at least, but do we know them? Do we know their names? Do we care? I can multiply stories about people who cared, people who made a difference. Missionary living includes loving our neighbor at work and so adorning the gospel of God. Paul transitions to urge his readers then to speak in two ways. First, speaking to God about men, and then secondly, speaking to men about God. We come to our second and shorter point here prayer. First point was labor, labora, now is prayer, ora. Ora et labora, or in this case, labora et ora. Paul begins with a general command. In verse 2, to pray. The general command, continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving, but then specifically asks for something that they might pray that the men would speak the word with all boldness as they ought, or as he puts it here in verse 3. Meanwhile, also praying for us, that God would open to us a door for the word, to speak the mystery of Christ for which I'm also in chains, that I may make it manifest. As I ought to speak. One missionary to Africa said, The history of missions is the history of answered prayer. That God has ordained that the world should be changed, even redeemed, at the request of His people. Well, God's will is surely, in general, as we read in verse 2, that we should ask Him for things. God loves to be asked, it's not just His will. Did you know it's His delight? Proverbs 15.8, the prayer of the upright is his delight. And God is so eager to hear prayers and to respond to them. He says in Isaiah 65, it shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they're still speaking, I will hear. Now, the important thing to realize from this is that God uh, transforms this request uh, in particular for... um, his uh, workers uh, who are speaking to God, uh, speaking to men about God, Paul and his friends speaking God's word in Rome. He makes therefore a specific twofold request. First, pray that God would open a door for us for the word to speak the mystery of Christ. And second, that when that door is open and the mouth is open, pray that God would give me grace to speak it as I ought to speak and make it manifest. Um, so, this kind of twofold request. First, for God to open a door for his word. I think there's some deliberate irony. Paul mentions here that he's in prison, and yet he prays for an open door. Not an open door to the prison, you notice, but an open door for the word. He has some liberty. He's able to uh, uh, receive guests at his rented house and uh, so forth. In fact, he's, he's chained to a Roman soldier. He's got a captive audience. So, hey, Pray that I would have an, that the, the lord 's Word would have an open door that 's the door I want God to open. Pray for an open door for the Word, or as Christ said to the church at Philadelphia, See I place before you an open door that no one can shut. I know you have a little strength and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name and so forth. So this is a blessing that we likewise need to pray for as We have this missionary mindset as we find ourselves at work in the world. May God open the door, preparing hearts, appointing a season for the working of his power in the lives and the hearts of our work friends. Uh, It was Hudson Taylor, that famous missionary to China, who said, We must learn to move men through God by prayer alone. That is to say, to move men as though prayer only were doing the work. So pray for God to open a door for his word. And secondly, for God to give grace to speak. Verse 4 again, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak to make known the mystery of Christ. It's not easy at all times to speak as you ought to speak. I mean, Paul's life was hanging in the balance in Rome as a preacher of Christ. He says, pray for me that I may declare the mystery of Christ as I ought. And so... We remember this, uh, this battle scene way back in Exodus chapter 17. Joshua is below on the field of battle fighting with the Amalekites. Moses is praying up above on the hill. And when he raises his hands in prayer, Joshua prevails. When his hands get weary and begin to fall, Joshua is driven back. And so you remember that uh, Aaron and her come to his rescue and hold up Moses' arms and assist him in prayer until the victory is won. Well, Paul says, brothers, I need you to do that for me. I need you to pray because God must open the door if his word is going to gain entrance through us to my friends at work. And second, because we can't speak as we ought to speak except our tongues directed by the Lord. We need to speak to God about men but finally today paul says in verses five and six we also need to speak to men about god speak to men about god Uh, being a a fine diligent conscientious caring worker working for christ very important praying to god essential we need to pray as though the whole matter depended upon prayer and yet here it is number three testimony. Following the same pattern, there's first a general exhortation in verse 5, walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time, and then a particular, specific uh, exhortation in verse 6. But in particular, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you know how you ought to answer each one. Uh, You see the parallel here. Most translations use the word ought. Pray that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. And verse 6, you also speak how you ought to answer each one the parallel. In general, wise missionary living means redeeming the time, buying up the time, or a few translations try to smooth it out a bit by saying that Christians should make the most of every opportunity. I don't think it's quite the same thing. It's good, but Paul's not actually saying make the most of of each opportunity. He's saying in so many ways, make opportunities. That is, seize the time that you have. Seize the moment. Seize the day. One scholar gives the sense, don't just sit there and wait for an opportunity to fall into your lap, but go after it. Buy up the entire stock of opportunity so says Mool. In other words, redeeming the time is the opposite of squandering the time. You take and take it up and you make the opportunity. Do not let it go. That's a general exhortation. Um, but in particular, verse 6, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, so you know how to answer every one in context uh, toward outsiders. Salty speech and gracious speech were common Greek phrases at the time, one scholar writes uh, what they meant by salty speech was sparkling conversation, speech dotted with witty or clever remarks, and gracious speech uh, in the culture of that day meant courteous and agreeable speech, pleasing speech. So that's the the Greek meaning of the words sparkling witty conversation, um, courteous and agreeable speech, Uh, I I strongly think that Paul, though he uses the same phrases, with his Christian vocabulary, gives a Christian meaning to those same words. And you can see that especially as you compare the parallel phrase in his letter to the Ephesians, as you know, Colossians and Ephesians in so many ways giving uh, a parallel uh, structure at this point. You can compare the parallel phrase in Ephesians 4, in, in Ephesians, let no corrupt Word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification that it may impart grace to the hearers. Well, there it is, very explicitly. Uh, salty in the sense of not corrupt and gracious as the idea of building others up and imparting grace, that is, the grace of Christ, to the hearers. So he means this in the Christian sense of these words. I'm almost positive, salt that fights corruption. Grace, not just kind and pleasing, but the riches of God's unmerited favor in Christ Jesus. Paul using it in this sense. So what he's saying to the Colossians, not that we should be witty and polite to people in the world, but to take the opportunity to speak in such a way that corruption would be arrested and God's grace would rather be imparted to the hearers and that we might know how we should answer everyone who asks us for the hope that is in us. That's the meaning. Well, in conclusion, Richard Baxter goes so far as to say this, choose that employment or calling in which you may be the most serviceable to God. Choose not that in which you may be the most rich or honorable in the world, but in that which you may do the most good and best escape sinning. And surely one of the ways that you might do the most good is having your work as part of your witness, having a missionary calling. You know, Franz Joseph Haydn, the great composer, had a practice of putting at the top of his manuscripts, whatever they were, a symphony, a string quartet, and so forth. He would write at the top, In Nomine Domini, in the name of the Lord, and at the bottom, the words Laus Deo. Latin students, Laus Deo. Yeah, to God, right? Uh-huh. Uh huh. So, uh, in the name of the Lord, and uh, then uh, praise uh, to God. Every Christian should, as it were, begin his or her workday with in nomine domini at the top, for the Lord's sake, in the name of the Lord, and concluding it, laus Deo, may God have praise. If we sincerely meant it, if we kept it in mind, if we worked accordingly, showing such care and love for the Lord's sake to others, it would transform the workplace again. And one more interesting thing to note here, I just read part of the greetings at the end, Paul's fellow minister, Tychicus, is coming from Rome now, bringing this letter to the Colossians, and he's accompanied by a man named Onesimus. You might know a runaway slave from Colossae who's met Paul, who's been converted. The whole thing's a little awkward. Here's a, here's a minister and a, and a slave on the lamb, and they're coming back to the church together. But what does Paul say? He, in verse 7, he introduces Tychicus uh, Beloved brother, faithful minister, uh, fellow servant. Actually, the word is bond bondservant. Uh, here's Tychicus, uh, a fellow slave in the Lord. He will tell you the news about me. Um, here's Tychicus, the minister, fellow slave. Oh, and Onesimus, how is the slave described? A faithful and beloved brother. Who's one of you? And they'll make known to you all things that are happening here. He never stops teaching, even in the greetings. Here in the Colossian world, they they have ministers of the word, they have slaves, and, you know, that minister is the slave of Christ, and that slave is a brother and a free man. There is neither Jew nor Greek or circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, 311. But Christ is all and is in all this brother who is one of you. The point is, whether your work is preacher or slave, here we are as one in Christ, one in work, one in prayer, one in witness. Brothers and sisters, welcome to missionary living. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we pray that our every labor would be for you, that our every minute be spent in your service. Help us to live, and while, while we live and are busy in the world as we must be, to sanctify all of our doings to your service. May we be those lumps of salt in society. May our spirit and our temper and our conversation be heavenly. And may there be a blessed influence about us that makes the world better before we leave it. May the words of grace, seasoned with salt, proceed from us, and may you bless that word in season. Now we pray that you would remember this poor world in which we live. Lord, may your kingdom come, send forth your light and your truth, chase the old dragon from his throne. O oh Lord, we pray that you would bring out your people as a great army under the banner of Christ and may the Lamb conquer again. May he have the victory in, in us in Jesus.